John chapter 14, verses 7 to 11. So we're picking up from where we left off last week, which we finished with Jesus' famous words of, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now we begin at verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is God's word. We uh, begin here in verse 7, remembering what Jesus just said in the preceding verses. He has established very clearly the grounds for which anyone can approach God. The only way you can come to the true God is through Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. No one comes to the Father, verse 6, except through me. There is no alternate route of knowing the God of heaven and earth. There's no way you can circumvent that. You must come to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And implied in that, implied in us having to come through Jesus Christ, is that every single person must abandon every sense of self-worth, every claim of merit that they might have, you lay it all aside. It's non-existent in the sense of us having any sense of merit before a holy God to come to Christ. You lay that all aside. You come as a desperate beggar, realizing that you have nothing in your hands to bring. And then and only then have you truly come to Jesus Christ. And when you come as a desperate beggar, looking to Christ for a righteousness that you could never possess in and of yourselves, then he clothes you in his robe of righteousness. He brings you to the Father. This is why Jesus is saying no one can come to the Father except through Christ. When you lay down every sense of merit, every sense of worth that you think you have and realize that you come as a desperate beggar, God is pleased to bring you before him in his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus here in our passage is reassuring his disciples that they have indeed come to the true God. It is a word of reassurance. It is a word of comfort to his disciples. So he is saying, if they have truly come to know him, that is, if they have come to know Jesus, then they have come to know God the Father. He is reassuring them that it's not like they know a portion of God. They've come to know Jesus and they need to know a bit more about this other person that's completely distinct. It's not as if they've come to know only a part. Rather, Jesus, as the Son of God, perfectly reveals the Father to all those who would come to him. This is the, the beautiful thing about this passage is that it's saying that Jesus actually reveals the Father 
to sinful humanity as they come to Christ, as they come to him, they are coming to God the Father. Jesus, of course, is not God the Father. We want to be very clear to say there is a distinct person. Jesus is distinct from the Father and yet of the one God. The one God in the person of Jesus Christ revealing the other person of the Trinity, the Father. The only way that comes about is by the third person of the Trinity, by the Spirit, rebirthing us to look upon Christ to bring us to the Father. This is the glory in our redemption. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father, just as even from a human level, we know that uh, sons often reflect their dad, for better or for worse. Certainly there are things that I can see that I, I wish wasn't the case, and then there are things that I'm grateful for. But whether I like it or not, people uh, who know my dad will look at me and know instantly that I am his son. And that's the case with a lot of people. Of course, we know this from an experiential level that people, even with sin in the relationship and even with the uniqueness of each individual, they still resemble many things of their parent. Now, how much more is Jesus, whom has been in an eternal and perfect and harmonious relationship with the Father, how much more is the Son of God going to perfectly resemble the nature of the Father? being in this relationship that has existed for all time. In fact, before time, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father for he is of the same nature as the Father, the same nature within the Godhead. So therefore, Jesus is saying in verse 7, if you've come to know me, you will come to know my Father. Now, if we can just get a bit uh, technical just for a moment, in verse 7, if you have an ESV Bible, uh, then the translation you have in verse 7 of chapter 14 is, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. But you have a, probably have a footnote at the bottom of your Bibles. That's the problem with having a phone. Um, you will have Bibles there, but I don't think they show the footnote. So if you have a paper Bible, you'll see the footnote at the bottom of it that gives a few other translations. One of which is, if you have known me, you will know my father also. Now, without getting into the details, I want to be very clear uh, to say that there are times where it's very helpful to go into the original language. But I want to be very careful so that you don't think, you know, Tom has special knowledge to only go in uh, to the Greek and no one can know it. I think this is a very rare occasion. We have wonderful people who translate the Bible very well for us. But at times, I think rare there are times where it's helpful to actually look at the original meaning and just the reality of the New Testament being written in Greek. There are aspects of the language that you simply can't adequately translate into English. And I think this is one of these times where the footnote translation, I would say, is a better translation. Let me explain why. Because if you read verse 7 as Jesus saying, if you had known me, then you would have known my father also. It seems like a word of frustration with Jesus saying, if you knew me, but you don't, then you would have known my father. Now, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think the emphasis is less about Jesus questioning their knowledge of him, and it is more about him reassuring them that they do know him. Therefore, the best translation, I would say, is Jesus saying, if you have come to know me, then you will know the Father. It's a certainty. 
It is a word of reassurance. It is a word of comfort to all those who have come to him, namely his disciples here to say, hey, if you have come to me, you will know the father. We see that because then the rest of verse seven, Jesus says, and now you do know him. You do know him. You know God, the father. More than that, you have seen him. That's what Jesus says here. Isn't this astounding? Jesus says, you, if you've come to me, you will know the father. And now you know the father. More than that, you've seen him. The father is here in the person of Jesus Christ in the sense of Jesus revealing the same nature of God, for he is God in the flesh. So Jesus is saying here, if you've come to me, then you have come to the Father in such a way that you've seen the Father. That's why he can say to Philip, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. You've come to know God in the fullest sense that you possibly could with a finite mind. This is an experiential sight. It is where the eyes of our hearts behold our glorious God. And so here is the great mystery of the incarnation, the incarnation being God taking on human flesh. Jesus is not simply a part of God. God doesn't have parts. When Jesus enters humanity and takes on human flesh, he is God, the living God in the flesh. It's why Paul could say in Colossians 2.9, in him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's saying it's not like we're just getting half of God or a third of God. No, this is God in the flesh walking on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. So much so that Jesus can say, if you've come to know me, you have come to know my father in the fullest sense that we with our finite minds could know. John began his gospel, you might remember in chapter one, verse 18, where he said, no one has seen God, but the only God, the only, the one and only, the unique God, who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. So though, yes, no one has literally seen the face of God, in the sense of Jesus revealing the Father, we have seen the Father. We have, he has been revealed. Literally, the word is exposited or expounded. So Jesus expounds the Father. He explains, he reveals the Father to us. As Jesus enters into the the realm of flesh, he perfectly reveals the Father so that the eyes of our hearts have seen the true and living God. Now, this raises an important question. And I realize this is, uh, to some, might seem a bit heavy uh, understanding the doctrine of God, but it's, it's a wonderful ocean that we're going to swim in for the rest of our lives, just learning more about this great God. And here is one of these passages where we get a bit of an insight into how the Godhead works, into how the Trinity works, how the, the Son reveals the Father, how the Father delights in the Son, how the Spirit awakens us to that reality. See, a question that you might have is, if you're a logical mind, how do you have the fullness of God who is above and over everything? How do you have the fullness of God dwelling in human flesh? How do you take the eternal inexhaustible God and, and put him in human flesh. Here's where we come to the great doctrine of, of Christian faith. One of the great doctrines, which is what I spoke about earlier, the, the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. Transcendence is this idea of being so far beyond our understanding. If something transcends our understanding, it, it, it surpasses our understanding. It goes beyond our understanding. God is transcendent. He's beyond our comprehension. 
And yet he is imminent. Imminent is to be near, to be relatable, to be perceived. And somehow this transcendent God is also imminent. Initially, it seems contradictory to pair these things together. How can you have someone who is so far beyond our comprehension, also so relatable, also so near? How does that work? Well, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see both the transcendent God doing things that only God could do. And we see the imminent God dwelling so near to mankind. And we live in a day where many attempt to bring God down to our level. This is why this doctrine is important. We live in a day where many people try and bring God down to our level so that he is totally comprehensible or so that he seems less holy than he actually is. We like to divest him of his burning holiness and bring him down to a level that feels more comfortable to us. And so we must recover a right understanding of a holy God who is holy other, who is transcendent, who is so unimaginably perfect, there is no impurity within him, we must recover this God, this God who is so holy that John the Gospel writer, who was in the the bosom of Christ, in his chest, he dwelt so near to him for three years, he walked with him, he was the disciple uh, beloved by Jesus. And John, in the book of Revelation, when he is on the island Patmos, he sees the risen and glorified Christ and he falls on his face as though he is dead. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus, so glad to see you. He just cowers in fear and trembles. He's zapped of all strength. That is the holy God, the risen Christ in the flesh. Jesus is the God who transcends our understanding with his perfection and purity. He has inexhaustible knowledge of man. He has infinite power to do things that no man can do. He is the one whom we read in Isaiah 57, who is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. How do you inhabit eternity? Eternity is inexhaustible and yet he inhabits it. This is why he's transcendent. And yet this high and lofty God, he is also so near and so relatable. And we see that in the passage in Isaiah 57, verse 15. We see the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. And then that God who is so high and lifted up says, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This holy God is so near He is so near. He delights in dwelling with those of us who are low and humble. We see that in the life of Jesus, don't we? We see a life of lowly humility. We see a life of service. We see a savior who, when he is approached by a leper, crying out to him who no one would touch. No one would go near a leper. Even today, if we saw a leper, we would freak out. You saw how people reacted to the coronavirus, much more someone who's physically, their limbs are falling off. We're going to run away. And Jesus, as this holy God, he comes and he touches the leper. He says, have mercy on you. As the leper is crying out, have mercy. And Jesus, as our Savior, lowers himself. He touches him and he heals him. 
That is our Savior. He is so near. He is so near and relatable that He lowers Himself to being tried and tempted in every way as you and I are, yet without sin. So that none of us could ever say, no, Jesus doesn't understand my circumstances. We can never say that. He was tried and tempted in every respect as we are, and yet He never succumbed to sin, which is why He is our great high priest. And so this transcendent God is actually revealed to be imminent in that he is near to us in some mysterious way. We are able to grasp the incomprehensible God in Jesus Christ. Now, if we come back to Philip here in verse eight of our passage, Philip's uh, confusion shows that he's not quite understanding what Jesus is talking about. So Philip says, Lord, show us the father and it will be enough. That'll be enough for us. If you just show us the Father, it seems like what he's really asking for is something like what Moses experienced. Uh, Yahweh appearing in the burning bush or, or, or Moses when he asked to see God's glory. And God said, well, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let my, my glory pass by. And it seems like Philip is saying, just, just give me more. You know, we've, we've, seen, we've seen what you've done, Jesus. We've seen you perform miracles. We've seen you feed multitudes. We've seen you raise the dead. But just one thing, one more thing, show us the Father. And it's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. In this request, Philip inadvertently highlights a dangerous misunderstanding of God. Philip seems to be thinking of a tripart God as though Jesus couldn't fully reveal the Father. But we don't believe in a tripart God. We believe in a triune God. That is the three people in one God, the three persons of the Trinity in one God of the same nature. And so Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God or the writer of Hebrews in one, uh, chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is of the same nature as God. So Jesus as the distinct person is of the same nature as the Father. So Jesus' response to Philip is, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, I think this is a word of reassurance. Jesus saying, actually, Philip, you do know the Father. You've seen him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus goes on to remind Philip that what Philip is asking for Jesus has been doing the whole time. Philip is saying, show us, show us the Father. Well, Jesus has been doing that the whole time. So Jesus points to his word and his works. In verse 10, Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. See, so remember Philip, Philip was there when Jesus spoke at the Sermon on the Mount when the crowds were utterly astonished at his teaching. Jesus was teaching as someone who had authority. Remember the words of those who heard him at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Or I love this, we recall John 7. If you recall from months ago when we were in John 7, the Pharisees, uh, they send officers to arrest Jesus and they, they hear Jesus talk and then they come back to the Pharisees empty-handed without Jesus. And their response when the Pharisees say, hey, where's Jesus? Is to say, no one ever spoke like this man before. We've never heard someone speak like this. No one has spoken with the authority 
that this man Jesus has. We'll see later on, years from now maybe, in John 18, when Jesus is arrested and the soldiers ask Jesus of, uh, who, where is Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus simply says, I am he. And they literally fall back. They fall to the ground with just really one word he would have spoken, which would have sounded like Yevah or Yahweh. And they fall to the ground. The word of Christ had the same authority as Jesus spoke them. He had the same authority as that word that was spoken in the very beginning when God created everything and said, let there be light. And there was light. And that same authority is in the word of Jesus Christ. So it is today. As we read our Bibles, this is the word of the living God with that same very authority. Even in the preaching of God's word. Today, as the word of God is proclaimed from pulpits, insofar as the word of Christ is rightly administered, it is Christ himself speaking to his church. That's wonderfully comforting for me, for it doesn't depend upon me, but it is Christ speaking to his church. Remember Acts 2, what was it as Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost? What was it that cut the people to their hearts? It wasn't the words of Peter. Sure, Peter was speaking them, but it was the word of Christ that cut them to the hearts. The word of Christ that is sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing through their hearts. This is why it is a, it is a scary thing, brothers and sisters, to, to sit under the preaching of God's word with apathy and indifference. It's a scary thing. Because it is Christ himself speaking to his church. This is why we prepare ourselves on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening as we come to here. We prepare ourselves. We, we read the passage beforehand. We're, we're here early. We're here on time so that we're doing the most that we can to prepare ourselves to hear God speaking to us. And as the word is rightly proclaimed, Christ is speaking to his church. So Jesus reminds the disciples that his word had authority. And then he goes on to remind them that he has performed works that only God can do. As Jesus says, the rest of verse 10, the father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus has fed multitudes with the equivalent of a few crumbs. He has healed the blind. He has raised the dead. He has performed things that only God could do. And so he says in verse 11, it's like a, a last plea. Hey, if your faith is weak, at least believe on account of the works. At least remember what I have done. Now, he's not calling them to simply see supernatural wonders and then all will be well. Jesus knows better than anyone that simply seeing supernatural wonders will not produce faith. Remember in uh, John 6, as Jesus feeds the multitude, they see a miraculous sign. They come to him the next day and Jesus says to them, paraphrasing, you're not coming to me for the right reasons. Jesus says, you're not seeking me because you saw the sign. You just see me because I fed a whole bunch of people and you see me as a helpful resource. And that's not what the sign was pointing to. So supernatural signs never guarantee faith. Jesus is calling them to look at the signs that he has performed and see that they are pointing to who he truly is, namely God in the flesh. So that as we look to how he has fed 5,000 people, we remember Jesus is the bread of life. He feeds our souls. He is the sole source of nourishment for us. We look to Jesus healing the blind and we remember that it is only in Christ that we receive true sight. 
Or we look to Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb when he was stone cold dead. And we see the reality of how Christ's word comes into our cold, dead hearts and calls us to life. For only God can do that. And so we do the same today as our faith is weak. And your faith may feel weak today. You may be full of doubts. Those whose faith is weak, we look to the works of Christ. We remember that at the cross, our sin has been dealt with. The, f- the full payment for our sin has been handed down at the cross. We, we, we look back and we remember that the cross shows us that God is for us. He is for us. He is always for us. He who did not withhold his own son because he gave his son. Of course, he's going to give us whatever we need, not necessarily want, but what we need to continue walking faithfully. So rather than looking inward as our faith is weak, we look outward to Christ. We look to the person and work of Jesus Christ and our faith is strengthened. So Jesus bookends this this section in verses 1 to 11. As we went over last week, the first verse of chapter 14 is a call for trust. Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. And he's saying that in verse 11 again. He's saying, trust in me, believe in me, trust that I am God in the flesh. I am saying things that only God could say. I am doing things that only God could do. Trust that if you've come to me, you have come to God. You've come to the living God. He is calling them, in a sense, to move on from a shallow outlook that attempts to understand God within natural realms. And this is the danger. When we seek to try to understand God with natural reasoning, whether it is Thomas, as we saw in verse 5, where he's desiring to know physically where Christ is going. He's confused rather than realizing that if he knows Jesus, he knows all that he needs to know about where he's going to go. Or whether it is Philip desiring to literally see the distinct person of the Father. Or even as we think about our day, that person who demands that God show himself. That person who demands that God reveal himself to him. And what that person is really doing is demanding that God show himself in a way that suits that person's natural desires, which if God were to do, he would cease to be God. For God is not fully comprehended according to our natural desires. He is a transcendent God. So we must be very wary of shallow and materialistic views that try to reduce Christ down to someone who suits our natural desires. There is a supernatural way in which we come to know Jesus Christ. This happens all the time in our world. For example, those who try to reduce Christ down to a God who is far less angry with sin and far more accepting of worldliness in our lives. That sort of Jesus who's more like your best friend than a holy God. Or reducing Christ down to a kind of life coach who's there clapping you on from the sidelines, just hoping that you live your best life and enjoy uh, life while you have it. And he's there if you need, but he's not a sovereign Lord who demands absolute allegiance of your life. We love to reduce Christ down to someone who is more palatable for us. As Jude, the author of the last book, right before the book of Revelation, he so helpfully reminds us in his letter after he tells us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And in verse five, Jude says, Jesus, 
who saved the people out of Egypt. Now that alone is incredible to see. Judas saying Jesus is the one who saved the people out of Egypt. Very clearly saying he is Yahweh in the flesh. He saved the people out of Egypt. But more than that, Jude says, Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who do not believe. The world doesn't really want that type of Jesus. The world is very okay with the meek and mild Jesus who's okay with you just coming as you are. Not so okay with the one who destroyed all of the disobedient Israelites and who will destroy those who fail to obey him today. And so we must preserve Christ as he reveals himself. We must take him at his word to believe in the Christ who is the fullness of God dwelling in flesh. The one who is high and lofty, who transcends our understanding and yet who dwells with the humble and lowly. If we have come to know this Christ, then we have come to know God. We have come to know him in the fullest sense that we possibly can. Now, let me finish with just two implications of this and then an exhortation. So that's covering the passage, the way Jesus perfectly reveals the father. If we have come to him, then we have come to him in the fullest way that we possibly can. That is, we have come to the true and living God. Now, the first implication of this for us to remember is that full redemption could only come by the fullness of God in the flesh. This is the only way you and I could be redeemed. This is why it's wonderful news that the God of heaven and earth, the true and living God has entered into human flesh because it's the only way redemption could come. It's the only way you and I have any hope. Let me explain this by referring to the, the Heidelberg Catechism. Just a few questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Speaking of the humanity of Christ. Answer very simply, God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin. If man has sinned, man has to be the one to pay for that sin. The problem is, how is man going to pay an infinite debt? We can't. So question 17 says, why must he also be true God? Why must he be true God in the flesh? Answer, so that by the power of his divinity, that is him being God, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore us to righteousness and life. That is to say, only God in the flesh, only God could bear in his humanity the full weight of God's wrath, God's crushing wrath coming upon him. No man could bear that. Only God in the flesh could bear the fullness of that wrath and then rise again by the Spirit of God to accomplish redemption. So if Jesus is reduced, this is why it's so important to understand this, because if Jesus is reduced down to a finite savior, then he is not a savior. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is a created being do not have a redeemer. There is no redeemer for he is not the fullness of God in the flesh. Therefore, he cannot redeem man to God. Our assurance is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and therefore he fully bridges that great chasm to unite man to God. That's the hope of our redemption. So the fullness of redemption could only come by the fullness of God in the flesh. Secondly, here is more of a comforting 
implication for us from what we see in this passage. That is that God primarily reveals himself as a father. Think about that. The way that God has chosen to reveal himself, the primary way, though there are many ways in which we see the glory of God, the primary way that God has revealed himself to the world is through Jesus Christ, which means that God reveals himself as a father giving his son. That's how he has chosen to reveal himself. Though he is a creator, he has primarily revealed himself for we come to know the living God in Jesus Christ. That means we relate to God as children to a father. We see a father giving his son. This is why God is so relational, so intimate. How is it that Jesus teaches us to pray? He says, when you pray, you're praying our father. You're praying as a child to your father. The fact that God desires to be known as a father helps us to remember that God is not stoic. He's not an emotionless creator who pulls puppets on a string. He is loving and relational. He is a father who loves his children. A passage that I love uh, to turn back to is in Zephaniah. In Zephaniah chapter 3, it talks about the, the God's redeemed people, His restored people, and it describes the way Yahweh looks upon His restored and redeemed people. And Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says, Yahweh, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that the God that you know? The one who exults over you with loud singing. The, the most boisterous loud singing, such as his joy over his children, that is our Father toward us. It's wonderfully comforting to, to know God in Jesus Christ, for that means that we relate to him as children to our Father with that cry, Father, Father. Those are the two implications of this that are wonderfully comforting. We have full redemption because the fullness of God has entered into the fullness of human flesh. And we relate to our God as children to a father. And finally, an exhortation, which is a bit of a warning as well. Do not be taken captive by a Godless Jesus. Do not be taken captive by any teaching that reduces the godness of Jesus Christ. Paul gives this warning in Colossians 2.8, where he says, Do not be taken captive by vain philosophy or empty deceit, which depends upon human tradition and not upon Christ. Don't be taken captive. Don't be enslaved by this vain philosophy or empty deceit, which is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. This is the constant danger. Now, this is a whole sermon in and of itself. But if I can just focus upon one aspect of this, notice in Colossians 2, right after verse 8, right after Paul gives this warning, he gives the passage that we referenced before. For in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in human flesh. So don't be taken captive by anything that reduces Jesus of his godness, because in Christ, the fullness of God is in the flesh. 
It's as if to say, Paul's saying, why would you become enslaved to any teaching that is not consistent with knowing Jesus God in the flesh? And there are all sorts of dangerous teachings out there today that take the Godness out of Jesus. Just like I referenced earlier, those who reduce Jesus down to simply a life coach or a helper that reduces him of his status as God. Jesus is just seen as someone who is up there, who who helps in our time of need, but he doesn't demand allegiance over every aspect of our life. Whereas the reality is that that God, who most certainly is going to help us in our time of need, is the God who demands absolute allegiance to him in every single way. There are those who diminish Jesus of his burning holiness. This happens all the time now. Those who would like to present to Jesus who is way more accepting of people, the whole cultural mantra that sort of funnels its way in churches of just come as you are. And and that's a lie as though to say Jesus is saying to us, just come as you are. Now, there's perhaps an element of truth, but what is wrong about that is that Jesus is not accepting of all people exactly as they are. He is accepting of sinners exactly as they are who turn to him in repentance. That's how he accepts them. When we come with nothing in our hands as sinners and we say, I'm turning my faith to Jesus Christ. My life is such, it's so full of rubbish and sin and garbage that I look now to Jesus Christ and God accepts us in Christ. He doesn't accept us just as we are without repentance. So we must not be taken captive by any version of Jesus who does not have the fullness of deity within him. That is a false Christ. We must not be taken captive by false forms of Christianity, where the idea is that Christianity is simply about helpful life choices and practical wisdom that we get out of it to serve ourselves, rather than a life of utter devotion to a holy God who is worthy of every ounce of our devotion. That's what it is about, knowing this God, knowing this God who is so transcendent, who is so high and lofty, and knowing him in Jesus Christ and spending the rest of our lives, as I said, just swimming in this ocean of knowledge, growing deeper in our understanding of who he is, deeper in our allegiance to him, deeper in our love and adoration of him. It is all about knowing God in Jesus Christ. And so if you have come to Christ then you have come to this high and lofty God who is sovereign over all and yet who dwells with the low and humble. He is not so lofty that he has not come down to say, you can know me and more than that, you can have an intimate relationship with me. You can relate to me as a child relates to their father. We come to him in Jesus Christ.